Hello to one talk here come lotanga to otimoana from RNZ Pacific I'm Koroi Hawkins Coming up we have uh, an enormous debt to pay for the devastating effects of the 67 nuclear weapons test The US President Joe Biden is being urged to apologize for the legacy of nuclear weapons testing in the Pacific also surely they could have a conversation as a Pacific and Maori bloc to come up with a solution for the overstay uh, situation Pacifica community leaders in New Zealand said they're disappointed in the lack of action on their petition for overstays to be granted pathways to residency in the country. And later on... It's kind of funny because I saw the article uh, recently that said veteran and I thought, oh, I didn't like that word so much. Ahead of the upcoming Davis Cup qualifiers, we asked 41-year-old Pacific tennis star Brett Bordenay about his secret for longevity in the sport. Over 100 activist groups, including Greenpeace, Veterans for Peace and the Arms Control Association in the U.S. have signed a letter calling on U.S. President Joe Biden to apologize for nuclear tests conducted in the Marshall Islands. The letter urges Biden to deliver on promises his administration has made regarding justice for those affected by the tests before the Compact of Free Association with Washington is signed by all parties. So far, Palau and the Marshall Islands have signed memorandums of understanding outlining the frameworks for what will become their third compact of free association. The Federated States of Micronesia has not. Susana Suizuki spoke to one of the signatories of the letter, Daryl Kimball, who is the executive director of Arms Control Association, and began by asking him why he felt it was important to endorse the letter. Well, from our perspective uh, here at the Arms Control Association and with the many organizations uh, who signed this letter, 113, it's important to remember the past legacy of U.S. nuclear weapons testing. We feel we have in the United States uh, an enormous debt to pay for the devastating effects of the 67 United States atmospheric nuclear weapons tests in the Marshall Islands. Why can't the issues that's been clearly outlined in the letter be addressed in the Compact of Free Association. I mean, isn't that why the agreement was set up in the first place? Well, these agreements last uh, uh, for a limited period. Um, They're negotiated in a particular point in time. And I think when the first compact was uh, signed in 1986, uh, it was uh, not clear the extent of the, uh, the devastation uh, the the extent of the health damage. And quite frankly, um, the United States government did not make uh, the extent of the damage as apparent as it should have. Um, I mean, for many years, what happened um, and the investigations were led by the United States government. The United States has not been as forthcoming as it needs to be about uh, the information to declassify a lot of the records that relate um, and the, frankly, the Marshallese people um, have, uh, because of the economic hardships provi- uh, created in large part by the history of nuclear testing, you know, they themselves don't have the technical capacity to deal with these issues. And so we see many years later, these issues persisting and uh, new um, uh, efforts need to be taken, uh, additional resources need to be provided in order to uh, try to recompense um, uh, for the, the damage to, to health and culture and the economy. Now, Daryl, can you specify 
the impacts that the nuclear tests have had on the community in Marshall Islands? Well, uh, every one of the islands in, in the Marshall's chain uh, were affected by the nuclear test explosions. Um, the greatest harm was to the northern islands. Um, the nuclear testing has led to serious illnesses over time in parts of the population, radiation poisoning, elevated cancer rates, birth defects, uh, and the contamination of food and water sources continues uh, to this day. One of the islands, uh, Runit Island, uh, where uh, uh, wastes from the past nuclear tests have been buried and uh, somewhat contained by something called a, a dome, uh, that island is completely uninhabitable. Uh, many of the areas uh, in the Marshall Islands are still contaminated, um, and some may not be able to be fully restored. Uh, we have to remember also that you know th these islands are low-lying. Uh, they're being affected by climate change. Um, they're being uh, battered by a number of different uh, forces. Um, so those are some of the so those are some of the impacts that affect. Uh, the Marshallese. And as a result of this, uh, many Marshall Islanders have left the islands. Uh, there's a large diaspora of Marshallese in the United States and elsewhere. Um, and uh, we think um, as experts and organizations that are interested in nuclear disarmament and nuclear justice that the United States has an important role to play here. And President Biden uh, needs to follow through on the unfulfilled commitments to address these past harms. I mean, there's been so many social and political injustices that's occurred throughout the history of, um, of America. I mean, what difference, in your opinion, what difference will an apology make to the people of um, the Marshall Islands? Well, I don't think any uh, formal apology can, can make up for uh, the lives lost, uh, the damage uh, created, um, but it is one of the, uh, the easiest things uh, that the United States can do. It's the right thing to do. Um, it would recognize the wrongs that were committed and help, uh, I think, teach future generations that you know, these wrongs can never be and should never be created. We can't take for granted the fact that um, through the efforts of millions of people around the world through the years, we finally have brought an end to nuclear test explosions in the atmosphere and even underground. But that taboo against nuclear weapons testing, uh, which is related to the taboo against nuclear weapons use itself, um, is fragile. And uh, every generation needs to do its part. And I think this would help reinforce uh, the norm, uh, the taboo against uh, nuclear test explosions. Pacific community leaders are calling for swift action over an overstay petition that was launched almost three years ago. Pakilao Manasi Lua believes it's time to establish pathways to residency for Pacifica overstayers, the majority of whom are Tongan. Pakilao says at the moment overstayers and their children are scared. He told Lydia Lewis he's disappointed in New Zealand MPs over their inaction on the issue. There's more than enough. Pacific MPs in, in Parliament, there's about 11 there. Um, and with uh, 15 Māori MPs, surely they could have a conversation as a bloc, you know, a Pacific and Māori bloc. 
come up with a solution for the overseer situation. Um, and that's the disappointing thing is that there's so many of them, yet there's no traction, it appears, uh, on this issue. And we've been advocating for it for the last almost three years now. Is this going to end up being a major election issue? For Pacifica, I believe so, because it's uh, it's tied in with the Dawn Raid apology. Apologising is great, but it's, it's not going to solve the situation for those that are uh, overseeing now, especially the children. You know, the children of overseers are an innocent party here, but it's not their fault that they're here um, under those circumstances with a decision made by their parents. And, and for whatever reason, you know, they could have been locked down here during the the COVID uh, lockdown, and they've, they've been no longer, you know, seen as a, a person here who's, who's legally meant to be here. And that's the sad part is that they're missing out on, on valuable services and things that they could contribute to uh, legally in terms of employment. Some of them are working already, and so I, I don't understand why the government can't see that. And can you please explain exactly what sort of cases you were talking about here? Sure, and, and like um, we're not advocating breaking the law, and we acknowledge the fact that um, people who came here and overstayed their visa, there is a, a number of different reasons why that might have happened. For instance, they might have been here during the lockdown, so they couldn't go back, or they were here on a, a temporary visa, and it made it, it was difficult for them to go back. And for in the case of Tonga, there's the eruption recently, so people uh, probably wanting to, uh, you know, find a better life. Uh, find a safe place and what better place in Aotearoa, New Zealand. And, and these are people who are often already working, you know. Um, we we do know there were people who were overstayers who were working frontline jobs while we were locked um, down in the, in the lockdowns. Um, so, you know, they're, they're not here uh, taking away because they can't, they're not eligible for benefits or anything like that. And to survive, they have to work. And so some of them are finding ways to survive. They're paying taxes. So for those who are sceptical about um, helping them, I'd also remind them that we've also got a tight labour market. We're looking for workers, and many industries are crying out for workers, and these people are already here. Some of them are well settled, they have children. Surely we can do something about that. You know, we helped the Ukrainians when Russia invaded, and, and that didn't take too long. Why is it taking so long now? Law Manuvao Dame Winnie Laban says she hopes the appointment of Carmel Sepuloni as New Zealand's first ever Deputy Prime Minister of Pacifica descent inspires young up-and-coming Pacific leaders to pursue careers in politics. Ms Sepuloni was chosen by New Zealand's Prime Minister Chris Hipkins on Sunday the 22nd of January and both leaders were officially sworn in at a ceremony at Government House on Wednesday. I spoke with Dame Winnie, who became New Zealand's first ever female MP of Pacifica descent after election in 1999, about the significance of Deputy Prime Minister Sepuloni's appointment for Pacific peoples in Aotearoa and around the region. Warm Pacific greetings, Koroi. Absolutely thrilled. Um, this is going to be wonderful for New Zealand and also wonderful for our Pacific region that for the first time ever, we have a Pacific representative and a Pacifica woman um, as Deputy Prime Minister. Uh, This sends out a signal that Pacific belong to the top and are at the front bench, and uh, how important we are as a Pacific nation, Aotearoa New Zealand. Now, uh, you yourself are a trailblazer, a first Pacific woman MP for New Zealand. In light of that, 
what does this mean and how does what does it i guess indicate for the future as well yes well um it's very important that we acknowledge that Aotearoa New Zealand is a Pacific nation. She's a multicultural nation. And the importance of supporting able and competent and committed uh, Pacific people into decision-making roles. And this extends to parliament, to private sector, uh, to civil society, public sector, judiciary. It is very important that we are aspirational to achieve those roles. Why? Because it brings our voice to the table where we need to be heard, it brings our needs, but more importantly, that we respond to those needs appropriately. And with Pacific people there, we bring not only merit, but the expansive word around cultural capital, uh, cultural knowledge uh, to where the decisions are made. And it's very, very exciting. Turning to Carmel herself, I guess your interactions with her and, and how you see this personally in terms of, if you can tell us a bit about um, yeah, the, um, uh, our new Deputy Prime Minister and, and how you see this in her progression in her career as well. Yes. Well, when I first came into Parliament, I was the first. And to be honest, it's long overdue to have more Pacific people in the New Zealand Parliament. But we now have uh, 10 Pacific MPs in Labour, one Pacific MP in Greens in Parliament, and we seven of those are Pacific women. Carmel has always been a very strong, hard-working, articulate, fiercely competitive uh, Pacific woman who's always had our interests at heart. And uh, she's also held some very senior portfolio responsibilities, especially with COVID, um, areas like um, the wage subsidies, um, ensuring that the benefits and the packages are available for our Pacific community, um, she's a very successful local MP and also active member of the Pacific Caucus and brings all those values that are ours, but also a pragmatism because, as you know, the voting public is not just Pacific. It consists of many ethnicities, many groups who have many different needs. She's ready. In, in terms of, um, I'm always uh, sort of going on a tangent here, but always interested in as Pacifica um, interests and Pacifica issues are, are more well represented, get better funding, we're getting uh, more status in the political space. How, in terms of the relation to Tangata Fenua, is 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 this complementary? Is this something that that works together with Maori? This is absolutely complementary because it is about time that Aotearoa New Zealand embraces and owns her history in relation to her identity as a Pacific nation. But more importantly, um, Māori came from the Pacific. You know, they came from Polynesia. Uh, we're, we're a family in terms of the region. It's about time that we celebrated and committed to that kinship and that history in relation to decision-making roles and the and the appropriate and um, sharing of resourcing. And uh, so secondly, um, Koroi, we must embrace the geopolitical nature of our region. It is very important that countries like New Zealand and Australia are not treating the rest of the Pacific in a top-down manner, that they are brothers and sisters, they have an equal voice to us around the table. And it's only can, can progress when we see some of our Pacific people um, going up the chain in terms of decision-making roles like Carmel's position. And I pray with the reshuffle next week that more of our Pacific people will get recognised. And, of course, we support Tangata Whenua 
Why? Because they're the indigenous people of Aotearoa, but also historically they have an ancestral connection of whanaungatanga and family with the rest of the Pacific. We, we're not in the Atlantic Ocean, we're not in the Indian Ocean, we're in the Pacific Ocean. Some Cook Islands tourism operators are struggling financially as they grapple with the country's holiday low season. This off-season, which started in December and will last until the end of February, is particularly bad. Flights from Los Angeles, which are no longer running, had previously bolstered tourism while it was quiet. Cook Islands Tourism Industry Council President Liana Scott says in January 2019 her accommodation was around 70% full and now it's just half that. Caleb Fotheringham talks to her about the situation. Will everyone be okay? Will they manage to get through this? Or are some places really, really struggling? To be honest, I think debt levels plays a big part to that question. I think there's been some conversations with the banks about giving some leniency to mortgage repayments and those sorts of things. So I think that that certainly plays a part. It also increases stress levels for businesses. I would imagine that a lot haven't caught up from having almost two years of no customers. The biggest thing we don't want to see is another wave of Cook Islanders and expatriate population leaving after just getting back to business. I think that's the biggest fear for businesses is losing staff again and and going back to trying to get them back into country, the cost and the headache of doing that sort of scenario is something that we're all trying to avoid as a priority. Has there been any talks with government to help support tourist operators during this time? Um, There has been conversations, (laughs) but they have made it quite clear that the governments are not there to prop up businesses and that they have already supported as much as they can and they've got to watch their cash flow as well. They have indicated strongly that they will not be able to support in terms of wage subsidies and the like. Uh, They have offered to support with delayed payment terms on tax returns and those sorts of things, and that very much is a a one-on-one conversation between the business and and, and the tax department. That's all that's really been offered at this stage. But in saying that, look, they still have monthly conversations with um, Private Sector Task Force, so that's Tourism Cook Islands and Chamber. Traditionally, Cook Islands government, they have subsidised a LA flight. Is the tourism sector still hoping for a Los Angeles flight? I think it's been made clear that subsidised money has been uh, used for... Hawaii, Rarotonga, and for Sydney, Rarotonga. I don't know the breakdown, I don't know the value of each of those, but there were a lot of conversations um, about what leg worked best for what money, and I understand at least for the next two years there will not be a uh, Los Angeles Rarotonga flight unless anyone wants to fly it without a subsidy, (laughs) which is quite unlikely. So um, it's really important that the uh, Hawaiian Airlines puts the cooks on the map with North Americans. And also there is still opportunity with that Tahiti Rarotonga leg with uh, Air Tahiti Nui bringing potential passengers out of France.
So you think the Hawaii flights and the Tahiti Nui flights, they'll all be able to sort of do the same job that this LA flight was doing effectively? No, I don't think it'd be able to do the same job, but I think what was proposed cost-wise made it not a viable option for the Cook Islands. Being able to fly from Sydney as well as Hawaii was better than just Sydney or LA. Last week, Tongans commemorated the first year anniversary of the Hunga Tonga Hungaha Pai volcanic eruption. According to NASA, the explosion was 500 times more powerful than the atomic bomb that destroyed Hiroshima. Remarkably, only three people were killed by the volcanic eruption in Tonga, but despite the low casualty rate, Finau Funua found many in the kingdom are still haunted by the traumatic event. On January 15th, Tongans attended churches across the kingdom to pray and to sing hymns of thanksgiving. It marked the year since the Hunga Tonga Hunga Hapai volcanic eruption, a traumatic event that is still vividly remembered. We heard this massive, just like this, you know, the sound. It kept going on and on, and, it, and then I suddenly see everyone panicking and running. There was a lot of panic. Uh, people were driving like crazy. Well, most of us were running. <laughs> running to higher grounds. I could hear people praying to the Lord for help. All of a sudden, the whole sky was black, and it was like pitch black. Three people were killed in Tonga by the disaster, a miraculously low number according to disaster experts, considering the destruction and sheer power of the eruption. The explosion generated a 58-kilometer plume that NASA scientists say was so high it penetrated the third layer of Earth's atmosphere. The destruction left many homeless, and the tiny islands of Atata and Mango were permanently evacuated to other islands in Tonga. One evacuee from Mango Island, Patiola Tutoila, whose father was killed in the eruption, says the evacuation was the final straw for the people of Mango, as their island had already been severely damaged by two cyclones in the years leading up. The truth is we lived in Mango our whole lives. It was our home and we loved it there. But when the tsunami hit, God knows we were all begging and praying to leave. From children to our elders, we were all set on the idea of leaving Mango permanently. I recall when the boat came to take us off the island. We were asked if we wanted to stay or leave. Everyone wanted to leave. We felt our island is so vulnerable, therefore we can't risk our lives. It's a sentiment shared by the over 70 former residents of Atata, who lost most of their homes to the tsunami waves. They now live in a newly built housing project on the main island of Tongatapu. Village elder Goli Falao says the move has been difficult for many as they lived a subsistence lifestyle on Atata and must now adapt to their new commercialized environment. It is true that we've faced challenges since coming to live in our new home. Life on Atata was definitely easier. We didn't have to pay for certain things like electricity bills or water bills, but now we have to work harder to afford paying for these things. Our people have only relied on the ocean to provide for our families. We're fishermen, and now we have to learn to adapt and to cope with the mainland way of living. 
Since 2014, the kingdom has endured three tropical cyclones, two of which were Category 5 super cyclones. The latest disaster has also prompted many other Tongan communities and coastal villages to move. Sione Utaatu, a long term resident of Kanukuporu, one of the villages worst hit by the tsunami, says his village is vulnerable to flooding because it is so low lying. Myself,、um, the very first thing that came to mind was migrating overseas. But then my parents don't want to leave. The, they, they, you know, they have their parents buried here. So, but for me, I, I'd rather、uh, go somewhere and live. I don't think anyone wants to continue and live here for, for, the, for the long run. In spite of the challenges, Tongans remain optimistic, and many are grateful for having survived a disaster that many scientists believed should have caused more fatalities. Helping, encouraging one another, healing one another. And that's the whole purpose of、uh, commemorations. Whatever happens, happens, you know? Like, just make sure you're spending time with family, make sure you're like, appreciating everyone. People are resilient. This is not their first disaster. They have seen、uh, Category 4 or 5 hurricanes. And, and a lot of people here in Tonga they have a, a lot of、uh, faith, faith in God, and I'm sure that provides a lot of reassurance to a lot of people. Pacific tennis player Brett Bordenay might have passed the magical age of 40, but he's certainly not slowing down. In fact, the 41 year old Cook Islander is part of the Pacific Oceania team heading to Barbados to compete in the Davis Cup early next month. Craig Stevens asked Bordenay how he keeps going. I mean, you're 41, but you're probably,、uh, your results are getting better and better. <laughs> how do you, <laughs> you manage to play so well at,、uh, at that age? Yeah, well, it's kind of funny because I saw the article、uh, recently that said veteran, and I thought, oh, I didn't like that word so much.、Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm 41, and I feel that in the recent years, I've actually, my tennis has gotten a lot better. I've, I've, you know, I gave up drinking, I've dropped a bit of weight, I've got fitter, so I'm moving much better on the court, and it, it, all, it all just sort of come, come well together. You know, I, I think the stat there that was shown was. The last four years, I think it was, I'm sort of 13 or 14 and two. So、um, it's been a good run for me. And I, I definitely think helping get fitter over the recent years has, has really sort of helped me. Just a lot lighter, obviously, on my feet,、um, less sort of ache and pains. And、um, obviously, with, with the years and experience, you know, this is my 19th or 20th year playing. Davis Cup going into it, obviously, the, the experience helps quite a lot、uh, over the years. You know, I, I thrive now under the pressure situations, which generally it always comes down to the doubles、um, being sort of the deciding match most, most ties. So, yeah,、uh, again, you know, this year, feeling confident going in. I think we've got a good chance against Barbados.、Um, Their number one guy is sort of ranked 800 in the world. And Colin is obviously a lot higher.、Uh, so, so I think we're looking pretty good. Okay, so presumably Colin Sinclair, and I think is, is it Clement Mengi who's playing the singles and you, and you play with Colin in the doubles? Yeah, I think、uh, generally what happens when we get there, our, our captain Emmerich will sort of decide the lineups.、Um, but I mean, yeah, it's, it's sort of the, the unquestioned position is obviously Colin with his、uh, ATP ranking. Um, will be our number one, and generally I do play the doubles with him. 
uh, we've had a, a very good um, history with our doubles over the years. So uh, I think that's the most likely outcome. And then for the number two singles, I think they would be definitely looking between Clement and uh, Gillian from Tahiti. Uh, with our two boys sort of in that number two position. Um, and then, yeah, again, it, it also comes down to, you know, depending on what the scores is after the singles, um, if Colin's feeling fresh and ready to go, he'd jump in doubles. Otherwise, we look at who else I could probably be playing with. Um, hopefully that I am the one playing in doubles, of course. Mm. We all decide once we get there. Yep. Um, you're obviously, um, you've been in this the circuit for... Well, you said at least 20 years, so I mean, you must obviously enjoy it and love the travelling and just the playing and everything else. Yeah, I mean, everyone sort of says, oh, where are you flying from, you know? So I'm telling them i got to go to, from Marba- uh, Melbourne to Barbados, which is through Fiji, LA, Florida, and then Barbados, and they all sort of, you know, first reaction most people was like, oh, that's a long trip, but I, I'm so used to it now and I actually enjoy it. And every year that the team is selected, even if we have a tie sometimes twice in a year, we, we always have to nominate ourselves for each tie. And uh, they, they select the team based on who's made themselves available. So, I mean, yeah, this is, like I said, 19, 20 years in. It's, every time I do get selected, it sort of gives me uh, gives me chills every time. It's such a privilege to actually get out there. For, for us small nations to be able to compete on a world level like this and pretty much one of the most popular sports in the world, uh, you know, it's, it's so exciting for me. I, I love it every year that we get out there. So uh, obviously, you're not, not you've got no intentions of retiring soon. No. <laughs> yeah, I think they even asked uh, Nadal that, and it's like, well, why would I be considering it? Um, you know, I'm 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 still winning. Uh, I haven't had any um, sort of serious injuries come up uh, in recent years, so I'm I'm feeling good. I for me, there's no sort of sights on when should I consider stopping i'm just going to keep going until you know that time does come obviously with, with you and with colin you've been around for a while now do you think that the pacific oceania team has sort of like strength and depth is it sort of like young players who are coming through who can take over yeah i mean uh, you know if you do put it in perspective like you're saying you know the, when i when i started playing davis cup all the guys that i played with have pretty much retired i mean they've you know, things have come up in their lives. They've obviously moved on to um, not just sort of uh, hanging up the racket as such, but having other responsibilities as well. And, you know, at my age, I, I, I would actually hope that there would be a lot more um, the top juniors coming through that are that are really, um, you know, given a good pool of selection for our, for our squad. And it, it hasn't been that way in... Uh, probably the last five to ten years, but in recent years now, our juniors are starting to come up. So it's great to see, um, you know, Clement Mangi is our young junior. He's off in the U.S. Julian uh, from Tahiti is a, another young boy coming through who's playing really well. And there's a, quite a few more juniors that are coming up um, in the ranks too. So I, I think, the you know, it's for the future of, of Davis Cup and the Fed Cup teams are, are looking pretty good. The Pacific Oceania team for the Caribbean also includes Colin Sinclair from the Northern Marianas Islands, Clement Menge from Vanuatu, Julian Osmond from Tahiti and Matavao Panguna from Tonga. The Davis Cup qualifying run begins on Friday the 3rd of February. That's Tangata for today. Remember, you can download us for free to your device from Spotify, iHeart or Apple Podcasts. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can also find us. Thank you, Tomas, and looking for that next time more.